Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus, increment 209, and since the last time I saw you, you have been treated to a marvelous message by Pastor Brian Messick, and I had decided to do both parts three and four of A Better Hope for Generations to Come, A Better Hope for generations to come, which is the kind of a springboard from, springboarded, we could say, from Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19, and Hebrews on the level of our own time. And I must begin today's message with a bittersweet announcement. And again, because we record these sometimes weeks before they are aired or go up on the website. I make this announcement a few weeks late, but nevertheless just as heartfelt, and that is that our dear sister in Christ, Val Thompson, was has departed from this life and departed from our immediate midst to be with her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Val was a longtime personal friend of Pam's and mine, and of many others, in Tetelestai Phalanx. She was a bright and shining light during her whole tenure with us, and sat in these chairs and received the word faithfully. She had her own personal agona, as so many of us do, if not all of us do. She was marked by sorrow, but she was more than perhaps anyone I know, defined by joy, a joy that was radiant and a joy that always came through on her countenance. The joy of the Lord was indeed her strength and she passed that joy contagiously to others and revealed the strength of her Lord in great joy. We love you, Val. We'll see you soon. And that ongoing catalog and hall of fame of faith that began in Hebrews 11 is surely getting pretty crowded and I'm grateful that Val fits into that wonderful document, wonderful catalog. I'm also grateful to Pastor Brown for doing such a marvelous job speaking on behalf of her in a eulogy and grateful for his gift being expressed in that way and duly honoring the memory of Val. We'll see you soon, Val. And Father, we pray that as we continue to proclaim Jesus Christ according to the revelation of a mystery, that our Lord Jesus will be indeed seen seen in his glory, seen in his all-saving splendor. And Father, I pray that you will allow the hope that we are cherishing as a very small and humble phalanx, that you will deliver this and give us the grace to deliver this hope to the emerging and coming generations. May your Holy Spirit carry it on the wings of a dove to that generation and to those upcoming generations of our children and grandchildren and beyond, if indeed you will allow those generations to be forthcoming before the coming of our Savior Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. This is a better hope for generations to come, and it is part three. This one will involve, unapologetically, the theological functional specialty called research, and that means I have about 19 quotes, but I think that you'll find them all to fit coherently into our message. And I'm going to give a kind of a tongue-in-cheek title to this also subtitle called Go East, Old Man. Go East, Old Man. 
and you'll see why I think. It would be wrong to generalize and say that the Western Church in toto failed in passing along the deposit of faith and that the Eastern Church, with no exception, succeeded. And in history, there certainly was that division between the so-called Eastern Church and the Western Church, Western really taking in Western Europe onto the West, Western Hemisphere, North and South America of our time. And it is generally accepted that the Eastern Church, Greece and Egypt and further East, carried and conveyed the hope of the restoration of all things and pass that along better than the Western Church did. And that's a pretty generalized statement, but it would be wrong to generalize and say that the Western Church, so-called, in toto, failed in passing along the deposit of faith and that the Eastern Church, with no exceptions, succeeded. But the Eastern Church is rightly, I think, much better known for its faith and hope of a universal restoration. However, it's primarily in the Eastern Church that we find this cosmic hope. The advice, go west, young man, is usually attributed to an American author named Horace Greeley in around 1865, at the close of the Civil War. And we hear it quite often, go west, young man. In my latter years, I've rather heard, go east, old man. Because I've been led in the past few years to explore the writings of the patristic theologians of the so-called Eastern Church. So as an old man, I've gone east, especially with the help of Ilaria Ramelli and her masterpiece of research called The Christian Doctrine of Apocatastasis, a critical assessment from the New Testament to Ariagena. There's no one that I know of that's done a better job of her in tracing the development of the hope, the better hope, than the churches generally or traditionally given than Ms. Ramelli. And she did trace it very well from the first to about the ninth century. And I want to just give little pieces and sampling of that to show you that God has allowed for the faith, that deposit of precious hope and faith to come down to our own time, even though it has been in a kind of a minority view. And so, therefore, it has come across as a minority report among the traditional church. So this exploration of the East has greatly encouraged my own hope, and I hope that I'll be able to, and have been up to this time, able to communicate that hope to others and maybe help to pass it along as a deposit to the coming generations. Before taking a sample of these Eastern patristic theologians, and they're not all Eastern, but these theologians from the first few centuries of what is popular called, popular, popularly called the Church Age, I really can't justify that entirely, but let's first consider the message of the New Testament itself and how it got a grip on Paul's followers. It's pretty clear that First and Second Timothy were not entirely directly written by Paul. Some scholars say that nothing in these documents were originally penned or directly dictated by the apostle, but by one of his able disciples. Others attribute parts, especially of 2 Timothy, directly to Paul. I tend to agree with that latter category, but I rather skirt the subject of the provenance of provenance, not providence, of those epistles. And skirting the subject of the provenance of these epistles, it is nevertheless clear that the Timothys, along with Titus, are invaluable and deserve canonical status, not least because they contain concise summary statements of the very deposit of the faith 
that we are talking about and will be more earnestly in part four of this series within a series. We've identified and expounded on these elsewhere. Ethelbert Stauffer, now he's a rarely considered theologian, and I have a very used copy of his book called New Testament Theology. And in note 738, which I've referred to many times before, he has some very interesting information about the, the bridging of a gap between the New Testament writers and the patristic writers of the first, second, third centuries, fourth on into the fifth also. And so Ethelbert Stauffer is one of the modern theologians who believes 1 Timothy to have been written by one of Paul's disciples. And he rightly assumes that Paul was an exponent of universal salvation. And I think we've demonstrated this in previous series, including Rev the Book and Better Call Paul and Romans. But Stauffer shows this clearly in a footnote in his book, New Testament Theology, and I'm including much of this note or samples of this note in the present study because it shows that there was indeed a bridge between Paul and the patristic authors and also from the New Testament writings and the writings of the patristic theologians. Of course, by saying this, the New Testament writings alone can be considered canonical and ultimately authoritative. But listen to Stauffer, for he says this, the idea of a universal salvation did not die out, that's important, even among Paul's disciples. And again, he assumes 1 Timothy was written by one of those disciples. The author of 1 Timothy 2.1 and following, he goes on to say, directly connects the motif of intercession in Romans 9.3 with the universal salvation in Romans 11.36 and so provides us with an authoritative testimony as to the earliest exegesis of Romans 9 through 11. Of course, Romans 9 through 11 ends climactically with God's showing mercy to all in verse 32 and of all beings returning to God in a redemptive conclusion of history and eschatology in Romans 11.36. So he's right there. But then he says this, quote, Christ takes up universal history. That deserves a volume or two in itself. But let me say it again. Christ takes up universal history. I would go so far as to say that Christ embodies universal history. And we'll see why. But he writes this way. Christ takes up universal history, which since Adam has been set on the way to death, so as to give it henceforth an all-inclusive end in salvation. Then he puts in parentheses Ephesians 1.20 and following, but I think perhaps he intended to say Ephesians 1.10 and following. And then quotes also Ephesians 2.14 where Jesus is called our peace, and then 3.10. He also makes reference to Ignatius, Barnabas, and Justin Martyr, I believe. Now, that Jesus takes up universal history and that by so doing he redeems history was an idea still held all the way up into the 7th century by Maximus the Confessor. He averred in his writing called Ad Thalassium 60, a book of questions and answers from a disciple of his named Thalassius, in the 60th question, it, or the 60th section, Maximus Confessor, the Confessor says, the termination of time is fixed within Christ. 
and that, quote, it is basic to the economy of salvation and deification that the being and the movements of creatures are fixed within the physical and temporal limits which Christ, as the cosmic logos, circumscribes. To me, that simply says what Jesus said about himself. I am the first and the last. In him, all history is embodied. He embodies all of history. Therefore, he not only redeems time, he redeems history. He not only redeems history, he redeems all creation, all of humanity within creation. I hope you're seeing Jesus as such a redeemer. And that's Hebrews on the level of our own time. Other examples from Maximus include this quote, and I'm trying to be brief with these because there are so many, from his, especially from his writing called The Cosmic Mystery of Jesus Christ. And from that, he says, quote, This is the great and hidden mystery, at once the blessed end for which all things are ordained. It is the divine purpose conceived before the beginning of created beings. In defining it, we would say that this mystery is the preconceived goal for which everything exists. And so you can see that Maximus, all the way up into around 640 AD, still with Maximus, that hope is still held. And the hope of an eternal and universal restoration was still being sustained, at least in the eastern part of the church, which is Christ's body. And then he said this, and I think these are all quotes worth making just to show you that I'm not just a voice crying out in the wilderness where there's no other voices on the subject. Maximus the Confessor also wrote this, it is the recapitulation of all the things he has created. Here we're talking about a better hope. And this is the hope I hope gets passed to the next generations. It's a hope that's a better hope than the evangelical church has handed down and has been speaking of at least in the western half of the Christian hemisphere. So again, Maximus says, it is the recapitulation of all things that God has created. It is the mystery which circumscribes all the ages and which reveals the grand plan of God. There, he puts in parentheses, rightly so, Ephesians 3, 10 to 11, to show the New Testament connection. He goes on to say, a super-infinite plan, infinitely pre-existing the ages. The Logos, capital L, by essence, God, became a messenger of this plan. He then cites Isaiah 9, 5 in the Septuagint, where the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, is called the messenger of God's great intention. I'll say it again then. The Logos, by essence God, became a messenger of this plan, Isaiah 9, 5, Septuagint, when he became a man, and if I may rightly say so, established himself as the innermost depth of the Father's goodness, while also displaying in himself the very goal for which his creatures manifestly received the beginning of their existence. Now, it sounds a little fancy. The wording is a little exorbitant, maybe, but again, I'm simply illustrating that the hope that we want to pass on to the generations to come was still alive and well, in Maximus the Confessor. His writings are worth reading and you can get them fairly inexpensively if you research Maximus the Confessor. These truths certainly have scriptural warrant in that Jesus himself declared, and this is where I would make this important quote, I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end in Revelation 22:13, That Jesus Christ takes up universal history and that the termination of time is fixed within Christ, and that Jesus is the first of the, and the last, the beginning and the end, all of these speak to the phrase, 
the dispensation of the fullness of times in Ephesians 1.10. And this makes it manifestly clear that when everything is summed up in Christ, that includes time itself and history. That's why we say that the recapitulation of all things is diachronic, D-I-A-C-H-R-O-N-I-C, as well as cosmic or universal. Now, don't get lost in all I say here, as the song Feeling All Right says. Don't get lost in all I say here. I'm still talking about a better hope for the coming generations, a better hope than the so-called evangelical church has in the main handed over to the world in recent times. Between 1 Timothy and Maximus, the deposit of the faith of our common salvation, which we're going to discuss again in part four, was guarded and delivered to others from origin, O-R-I-G-E-N, in the second century, to Maximus in the seventh, and then to our present time. Mainly, and I say this not all, but mainly, in the East, or that is not exclusively, but mainly the Eastern Church, which at least has retained this hope, but also by certain theologians in the West, even currently and recently, notably Karl Barth, of course, and Jurgen Moltmann and others. A small sample of writers between First Timothy and Maximus, therefore, who cherished and wrote of this better hope will be helpful though we've given many examples before and in a number of other studies, especially, I think, in Revelation, we referred to these a lot. Irenaeus, one of the best, hundreds of years before Maximus, used the term recapitulation. He used that term to describe the Greek phrase anakephaliosis, or the summing up of all things under the headship of Christ. And... Of Irenaeus, a scholar named J.N.D. Kelly wrote this, quote, Its premise, that is the premise of recapitulation, is the idea that if we fell through our solidarity with the first man, we can be restored through our solidarity with Christ. Now, I'm going to qualify that phrase, can be, as you'll see in a moment. Kelly goes on to say, the key conception which Irenaeus employs to explain this is recapitulation. That's kind of a Latinizing or an Anglicizing of anakephaliosis from Ephesians 1.10. So a lot of this is an exegesis of Ephesians 1.10, which he borrows from St. Paul's description, Ephesians 1.10, of the divine purpose as being to sum up all things in Christ. He understands, and he refers to his book Against Heresies, the Pauline text as implying that the Redeemer gathers together, includes, or comprises the whole of reality in himself, the human race being included. I can't emphasize this enough. Jesus, the Redeemer, gathers together, includes, or comprises the whole of reality in himself, the human race being included. Reality is indeed Jesus. And I have a deep and abiding faith in his reality and in Jesus as the reality. Time itself is part of created reality, so time itself will be comprised in Jesus Christ. J.N.D. Kelly also adds this, and, quote, another quote, again, this research is the theological functional specialty of the day in this message, and, quote, running through almost all the patristic attempts, the patristic, uh, the patristics as they're called, 
are what we often refer to as the church fathers, some of them from the east, some of them from the west, western church. But he says, running through almost all the patristic attempts to explain redemption, there is one grand theme which we suggest provides a clue to the father's understanding of the work of Christ. This is none other than the ancient idea of recapitulation, which Irenaeus derived from St. Paul, and which envisages Christ, or we could say sees Jesus, as the representative of the entire race. Just as all men were somehow present in Adam, so they are, or can be, I would erase the word or can be, the phrase or can be. So they are present in the second Adam, the man from heaven. Just as they were involved in the former sin with all its appalling consequences, so they can participate, he says, and I would qualify that again, so they will participate in the latter's death and ultimate triumph over sin. The forces of evil and death itself Because very God as he is, meaning Jesus, he has identified himself with the human race. Christ has been able to act on its behalf and in its stead. And the victory he has obtained is the victory of all who belong to him. Then Kelly says this, all the fathers of whatever school reproduce this motif. So this better hope than the evangelical church of late has been offering to its generation is the hope that we want to kind of revive and revivify and even enhance and pass on to our children and grandchildren and beyond. So again, I want to qualify these two quotes. You're going to see these in print if you want and if you're interested. I would qualify one thing repeated several times in the above quote. Instead of saying they can participate in the latter's death and ultimate triumph over sin, I would say they will or even they have participated in Christ's death and ultimate triumph over sin. It isn't a matter of what man can do or of the possibilities for man, but of what God has done in Christ for man. Not a possibility, but an incontrovertible reality. That's me speaking. Since we are emphasizing research as a theological functional specialty, in this message, I want to quote Alaria Ramelli again. She observed that origin from actually the second and third century conflated the apocalypse, which we call the book of Revelation, and 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-five to 28. Remember, we did that around New Year's about the micro-apocalypse, and also on Martin Luther King Day, I think we mentioned that also, the micro-apocalypse of 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-four to 28. But Origen was smart enough to conflate the Apocalypse or the Book of Revelation and 1 Corinthians, in this case, 1525 to 28. I'll say this too. All of the patristics understood, who understood this hope we're talking about, all referred copiously and many times to 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28, that passage, or 22 to 28, that wider passage. And it gained a lot of purchase in all of these theologians, as it should again be revived. Remember also Sergius Bulgakov identified that passage as a micro-apocalypse. But of Origen's conflation of Paul's passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 25-28 with the whole book of Revelation, Ramelli wrote this. Reading the eschatological predictions predictions in Revelation in the light of the eschatological scenario depicted in, this time she says 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28, with the destruction of death and the powers of evil and the submission of all creatures to Christ who will hand all to the Father so that God will be all in all, 
is not at all unjustified. Meaning, conflating Revelation with this little micro-apocalypse is not unjustified. She goes on to say, on this hypothesis I suggest, the author could well have intended to insert many key references to Paul's letters as the core of the New Testament writings after the ancient scripture and in continuity with it. And that again is a phenomenal truth. Paul's writings and the book of Revelation have a correlation and they do not deviate from the Old Testament writings, the ancient Hebrew scriptures. Because as we know, Peter observed that all of the prophets from time immemorial, those who wrote in the Old Testament, spoke univocally or God spoke with one voice in all these holy prophets of one theme above all, and that was the apocatastasis, apocatastasis pantone, the re- restoration of everything, a universal restoration, which we now know is embodied in Jesus. When we see Jesus, we see this embodiment of hope and this embodiment and of eschatological restoration and universal and diachronic restoration. It's all, it's all in Jesus. You see him, we see all of it. And so Romelli also wrote about another patristic father, one that I have been very impressed by, and that's Gregory of Nyssa, N-Y-S-S-A, sometimes called Gregory Nyssen or Nissen, as much as Thomas Aquinas is called, as if that's his name, Aquinas, when it's really Thomas of Aquinas. There's Gregory of Nyssa of the fourth century. And he was influenced by Origen, even though sometimes he argued with him, about certain things like the pre-existence of souls, for example. But he agreed with him about the restoration of all things. And Gregory of Nyssa also strongly influenced Maximus, who's almost like reading a modern theologian, Maximus. So again, this is Romelli from her wonderful book, 800-page book, called Apocatastasis. She writes, another way in which apocatastasis, according to Origen, depends on Christ, lies in the so-called theology of the image, which will be clear to Gregory of Nyssa too. In their view, the image of God in every human being, Genesis 1.26, can be blurred by sin, but never canceled. Now this too depends on Christ, who is the very image of God. For that I would give 2 Corinthians 4.4 and Colossians 1.15. And then in parenthesis it says, if the Logos is the image of the invisible God, it is the invisible image, eratos ekon, and has assumed the whole of humanity. Christ, the Logos, in becoming flesh, according to Origen and Gregory Nyssa, assumed the whole of humanity, W-H-O-L-E, thus restoring the image of God in it. Now this image of God theology is something that I hope to follow up on in times to come. In fact, this is the gospel of the glory of the Christ who is the image of God. This is the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. This is the gospel of the glory of the Christ, who is the image of God. Note that phrase, that phraseology from 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He's called the heavenly man, whose image we are all to bear in 1 Corinthians 15.49, in what I call the extremity of our salvation whose glory is destined to fill the whole earth, according to Psalm 72.19, Septuagint 71.19, Psalm 98.2-3, Septuagint 97.2-3, manifested to all the nations, and confer with Romans 1.17 on that, Isaiah 6.3, 
Isaiah 11:9, Habakkuk 2:4, his glory fills the whole earth. And when the glory of the Christ fills all the earth, that includes very significantly filling the once earthly and earthbound man, Adam, with the glory of the heavenly man, the son of man. So when all the earth is filled with that glory of God, that includes the earthly man and all in Adam who were once earthly, now filled with the glory of the heavenly man. That's another universal salvation, we could call it, or even a universal deification, if we understand the term from previous messages, that is in the scripture. And I'm only just beginning. The last few sentences are my own take on this, which I think might blow up into a doctrine someday. Gregory Nissen, also Gregory of, known as Gregory of Nyssa, the most insightful and innovative follower of origin, according to Ramelli and other works, in his works, The Soul and the Resurrection, and in Gregory's commentary on 1 Corinthians 15.28, which he called When the Son Himself, that's the name of his writing, When the Son, S-O-N, Himself, Gregory defines the eventual apocatastasis as, quote, the culmination, or the culmination, rather, and the realization of Christian hope. Telos tes elpidos. Now, here's the heart of the matter of our four-part series called A Better Hope for the Coming Generations. The culmination and realization of Christian hope is the apocatastasis which is the restoration of all things, including the image of God in all of mankind. Can't be emphasized enough. This is the hope we want to pass on to the future generations. Have you heard that much in evangelical circles, in Christian conferences in the West? I don't think so. Although, thankfully, that hope is beginning to blossom and burgeon in our nation. Does Jesus Christ redeem some humans then, I'll ask, or does he redeem human nature itself and thus all humanity in its totality? If we ask the patristic theologians, we get an emphatically affirmative answer to the second half of that question. Yes, Christ redeems human nature itself in its totality and therefore all of mankind. Gregory of Nyssa, in his writing called On the Soul and Resurrection, which is Latin, de anima et resurrection, defines the resurrected life itself as the restoration of our nature to its original state. I think it goes beyond that, but that's interesting observation. Then on page 189, Gregory of Nyssa, in his book called or his writing called When the Son Himself, wrote, His, Christ's body, is the whole human nature. I think I get the point of what he's saying there, and maybe you do too. Likewise, again, Ramelli, and I hope Ms. Ramelli doesn't mind me citing these things so much, in De Principis Peri Archon, or On First Principles, Origin again, the one who influenced Gregory, emphasizes the importance of Christ's inhumanation. Inhumanation is a kind of more specialized term than incarnation, meaning referring to in his becoming flesh, he becomes human or ha- takes on or assumes a human nature. So again, emphasizing, origin emphasizes the importance of Christ's inhumanation, death, and resurrection. And the link between Christ's inhumanation and human salvation is well expressed in his dialogue with Heraclides, another book. Quote, humanity would not have been wholly saved, W-H-O-L-L-Y, completely saved, remember Hebrews 7.25, if Christ had not taken up humanity in its wholeness, W-H-O-L-E-N-E-S-S. Phenomenal little statements. Again, humanity would not have been wholly saved if Christ had not taken up humanity in its wholeness. He goes on to say Christ's incarnation was necessary to destroy sin in the flesh. 
and then that's from commentary in Romans 5.1. The importance and following, the importance of Christ's resurrection in respect to apocatastasis is clear. Quote, the whole creation was restored through the Lord's resurrection. How's that for an Easter message? Guess I won't have to preach one this year. The whole creation was restored through the Lord's resurrection. Did you hear that? The whole creation was restored through the Lord's resurrection. You see Jesus, you see him risen, you see the whole creation restored. And still again, Ramelli, sorry, Alaria, on page 195 of her 800-page wonderful researched book, she said, I add another significant passage from Origen's homilies on Psalms 36 through 38. The notion of the body of Christ subsuming all humanity on the basis of 1 Corinthians 12, 27, interpreted in an, in an inclusive way, is widespread in origin, but it also extends to all rational creatures who thus also constitute the body of the Logos and even to all creation. Now, before I continue on that quote, I get that. Because Colossians 1.18 and following, as well as Ephesians 1.22 and following, if Christ is the head of all things, if Christ is the head of principalities and powers, and if Christ is the head of the body of Christ, that means that the body of Christ is comprised within Christ and under his headship. If he's the head of principalities and powers, that means all angelic beings are comprised and redeemed under his headship. If he's the head of all things, then that means all the universe is comprised and recapitulated under his headship, ultimately. So she goes on to say, Origen goes on to express one of his favorite ideas, which will inspire Gregory of Nyssa closely for his own main thesis in the Son also. The final submission of Christ to God will be a submission of his body, that is, humanity or all rational creatures. And this submission will be a salvific submission. Now, I'm going to take a leap here and go all the way up to a Western theologian named Thomas of Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas, in all of his writings anyways, was not a universalist, not a professed universalist. He never professed to be. Although there's an intriguing thing that he said toward the end of his short 47-year life. He said that he saw a, a revelation while in church. He was in a church before a, a crucifix, Evidently, he had this stunning, shocking, shattering revelation, which caused him to say that all he had ever written was straw. Now, I, don't, I wouldn't agree that all he ever wrote was straw. I've read Summa Theologica and other writings of Thomas. And in there, there are, is a profound understanding of the incarnation, of the eternal salvation, and even... I don't even know if Thomas even knew he was writing this. A lot of his writings implied very strongly universal salvation. But then he had to revert and step back into a traditionalism in which purgatory and hell and all these other things invaded. The things that give people mental illness today and cause so much moral corruption and spiritual perversity. And so there's a lot of flies in the ointment here of Thomas. But I think, and this is again total supposition, total speculation on my part, I think what Thomas saw was the earth-shattering revelation of universal salvation, a universal restoration. And he never wrote since then. He spent the rest of his time in prayer and contemplation I think he died in his sister's home and at age 47. 
And he's like so many other writers who discover this and they, they realize, I didn't see that in all my past writings, so they write everything off rather than do what we're trying to do and preserve the good things that we had preached and taught before we came to that revelation and then to carry on with that revelation. That's what I wish he had done. I wish uh, someday we'll know what Thomas discovered that shattered him so much. And, but listen to this from Summa Theologica, Part 3, Question 49, Article 4, in the fourth point of inquiry on the question. He asked the question, whether we were reconciled to God through Christ's passion. The objection here and Thomas's answer to this captures what we call, what Lonergan called, the law of the cross. What Luther and others called the theology of the cross, including Moltmann. What Paul called the word of the cross. Here's the objection to the question, whether we were reconciled to God through Christ's passion. Objection three only, I'm quoting. It says this. Christ's passion was completed by men slaying him, and therefore they offended God grievously. Therefore, says the objector, Christ's passion is rather the cause of wrath than of reconciliation to God. Again, that's the objector. It's important to notice that's not Thomas, that's the objector. If we understand that what Paul is saying in Romans and com- contrast it with what an objector of Paul's is saying, we'll interpret Romans a whole lot better than the evangelical church has generally done. And we'll see in Romans an unqualified and definite universalism by Paul. Listen to Thomas's reply to that objection. Reply to objection three says this. As Christ's slayers were men, so also was the Christ slain. Now the charity of the suffering Christ surpassed the wickedness of the slayers. Accordingly, Christ's passion prevailed more in reconciling God to the whole human race than in provoking him to wrath. Now, you can imagine being a student of Aquinas. I would say, Dr. Thomas, are you meaning to say that the whole human race was reconciled to God in the death of Christ and that the love of Christ has overcome the wrath of God? And he would probably say, yes, but, because he had to revert to a lot of the traditions of the church which spoke of an everlasting hell and other things. Now Aquinas is classified as a Western theologian, though certainly not a universalist, as is the case with the majority of Western theologians up to and through the Reformation. Calvin wasn't one although he said things that almost sound universalistic, same with Luther and others. But though certainly not a universalist, I have my suspicions that he became one through a startling revelation near the end of his life of mere 47-year life. The law of the cross, and I want to close with this, the law of the cross ensures that all the evils of the human race will be converted into the supreme good. This is the hope that we must deliver to the emerging and future generations. For some, this law is enacted even in this evil age. For example, Saul of Tarsus, his case. For others... It will be enacted in future world. And the conversion of all the evils of the human race into a supreme good will be realized. Deuteronomy 23.5, 
God turns a, bless, turns a curse into a blessing. He did so because Christ became a curse for us in Galatians 3.13. Romans 8.28, he works all things together for the lovers of God, and the lovers of God are, be, are all of humanity in Christ. And 1 Corinthians 15.28, Ephesians 1.10-11, of course, again, reverting back to and our foundation in the scriptures. Now, a modern Western philosopher and theologian, whom I have quoted often and who is one of the most influential on me of all theologians, Bernard Lonergan, put it better than I can, saying this, the action of crucifying our Lord was as wicked as possible, and the action of our Lord in suffering the crucifixion was as good as possible. The actio and the passio, the action and the passion, are the same concrete reality. Still they differ by the wills, wills, that is the volitions of men, to cause the one and undergo the other. You have there the transformation of evil into good. Death, which was the penalty of sin, became the means of redemption. This is the fundamental Christian symbol. Now I ask again, if death is the penalty of sin and all sinned, and if death became the means of redemption, does it not become the means of redemption for all who sinned? Of course it does. That's the short answer. Protestant theologian G.B. Caird, C.A. IRD wrote this along these same lines. The Spirit of God in all its fullness could be sent out into all the world only as the horns and eyes of the Lamb. He's commenting, of course, on Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, and also conferring with John 15, 26, 16, 7, and Acts 2, 33. Caird goes on to say, by this symbol, John undoubtedly invests Christ with the attributes of deity, but he also does something more important still. He redefines omnipotence. Omnipotence is not to be considered the power of unlimited coercion, but as the power of infinite persuasion. The invisible power of all self-negating, self-sacrificing love. The point I'm making, and I'm trying to make in four consecutive messages at least, is that though not in the main of late, especially in the West, the better hope of a divine beautification, beatification project for all of creation in all of its times and the deification of all humanity over all its history in Jesus Christ was a hope that survived and even thrived in some quarters of the church, and even now still does. My end statement, or my end sentence, is a prayer and a hope. May this hope come to the fore, and may it attract uncounted millions in the generations to come. In Jesus' name, amen.